Buzz Lightyear to Star Command. Come in, Star Command. Star Command, come in. Do you read me? Terrain seems a bit unstable. No readout yet if the air is breathable. And there seems to be no sign of intelligent life anywhere. Hello? Oh, yeah! Ah! Whoa! Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Did I frighten you? Didn't mean to. Sorry. Howdy. My name is Woody, and this is Andy's room. That's all I wanted to say. And also, there has been a bit of a mix-up. This is my spot, see? The bed here. Local law enforcement. It's about time you got here. I'm Buzz Lightyear, Space Ranger, Universe Protection Unit. My ship has crash-landed here by mistake. Yes, it is a mistake, because you see, the bed here is my spot. I need to repair my turbo boosters. Do people still use fossil fuels, or have you discovered crystallic fusion? Oh, I don't know. You think they've never seen a new toy before? Well, sure, look at him. He's got more gadgets on him than a Swiss Army knife. Ah, 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 please be careful. You don't want to be in the way when my laser goes off. Hey, a laser? How come you don't have a laser, Woody? It's not a laser. It's a, it's a little light bulb that blinks. What's with him? Laser envy. All right, that's enough. Look, we're all very impressed with Andy's new toy. Toy? T-O-Y. Toy. Excuse me, I, I think the word you're searching for is Space Ranger. The word I'm searching for, I can't say, because there's preschool toys present. Getting kind of tense, aren't you? Well, in a couple of days, everything will be just the way it was. They'll see. They'll see. I'm still Andy's favorite toy. I'm on top of the world, living high. Right in my pocket. <laughs> Whoa. I was living the life. Things were just the way they should be. With the man of the sky like a bomb comes some little pocket of rocket. Now all of a sudden, some strange things are happening to me. Buzz Lightyear to the rescue! Strange things are happening. I love Toy Story. I love it. It's one of the few children's movies I've ever seen with my kids. I actually stayed awake in the whole movie. But if you remember Toy Story, you remember this part of Toy Story. It's really kind of cool. And the reason why I love Toy Story is because it's, this, it's, it's a classic because it reflects human nature through these hilarious cartoon characters. They're just really like adults, and they, and they, and they act like we act. For example, take Woody. Woody is the king of his world. He is the man in his universe. And for a while, everything's just right in his world. And then all of a sudden, this guy, this character, Buzz Lightyear, comes swooping in. And all of a sudden, everything has gone wrong. His whole world has been ruined. And as he closes the lid on that toy chest and the lights go out, he has this look on his face as if he's saying, what in the world has gone wrong with my world? Now, 
I want to ask us to do something kind of strange. I've never asked our congregation to do this before, but in unison, I want us to snap our fingers. All right, I'm going to say one, two, three, and I want all of us to snap our fingers. Ready? All right, one, two, three. All right, one more time. One, two, three. Okay, now you say, well, that was kind of weird. It is weird, but it's all because of a question I want to ask you. The question is, if you could just snap your finger and you could change one thing in this world, would you? Now, that's kind of a rhetorical question. You say, well, of course. Because there are, there are things we would all like to change about our world. As a matter of fact, depending on your political affiliation or your spiritual background or your philosophical worldview, you might change anything from the crime that's in the world to the wars that are in the world to the disease that's in the world to the poverty that's in the world or, or maybe you would be into eliminating climate change. But that calls for another question. Why would you change anything about this world? And the truth is, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, whether you are a liberal or conservative, whether you're religious or non-religious, whether you're white or black, whether you're rich or poor, there's something all of us know instinctively. Nobody has to tell us. We would have to read it in a book. We all know deep in our hearts there's a lot wrong with this world. As a matter of fact, if we could snap our fingers, there's nobody in this room that would say you'd only change one thing. You'd have a list of things. You'd have a laundry list of things that you would change about this world. And the truth of the matter is you don't need a Bible to tell you that. And you certainly don't need a pastor to tell you that. And the question behind all of these questions is this question. Why is there so much wrong with this world? And how did this world go so wrong? Deep in our hearts, we know this really isn't the way this ought to be. This really isn't the world I would have chosen to be in. And if I could choose a different world, I would make it a totally different world. Why? What's wrong? Well, we're in a series that we're calling Real Grace. That's not only going to answer that question, but it's also going to give the solution. And I'll go ahead and tell you what the solution is because it's what this series is all about. The solution to our problems is in one word, and that one word is grace. Now, we're in a book. It's a letter that was actually written by a man to a church, and it was called Romans. It's a magnificent letter, and it was written by a man named Paul to the Christians who were in Rome. And what this letter is all about is he's making the case for grace. He is telling them, and he's also telling us, why we need grace, what grace is, how grace operates, and how grace works. So today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, and to me, it, it may be, and let me just kind of warn you ahead of time, this is a deep passage of Scripture. This is not John 3.16. This is not Jesus wept, okay? This is really deep waters we're going to walk into, but I, I, the reason I love this passage is because Bible scholars, a lot of Bible scholars that tell us they believe these are the five most important verses in all of the Bible. Now, think about that. I don't disagree with that. I really believe from a, not only a theological standpoint, 
But from a, 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 a personal standpoint, from a practical standpoint, honestly, I really do believe these may be the five most important verses in all of the Bible. As a matter of fact, one Bible scholar said this may be the most important paragraph ever written in the history of the world. Somebody else said that this passage that we're going to look at today is not only the heart of Romans, it's also the heart of the New Testament. It's also the heart of the entire Bible. It is ground zero of our spiritual universe. No less a luminary than Martin Luther said, these verses are the chief point of the whole Bible. Now, before I tell you what passage that is, quite frankly, that ought to get your attention. Whether you're a believer or not, whether you even know much about the Bible or not, whether you read the Bible, whether you know much about the Bible, I believe the passage we're going to look at today is so compelling, it is so vital, it is so important because it describes the best deal ever offered in the history of the world that can be accepted anytime, anywhere, at any place by anybody. And what we're going to look at today is real simple. We're going to look at why every race needs amazing grace. Every race. Doesn't matter what race you're from, what tribe you're from, what color your skin is. We're going to see today why every race in the world needs amazing grace. Now, here's the thing that's going to keep you interested today. You may remember in school, and I guess they still do this in school, taking field trips. Okay, many of you remember doing that. What we're going to do today, if you will, we're going to take a field trip. And we're going to visit three places. We're going to visit a courtroom, and then we're going to visit a marketplace, and then we're going to visit a religious altar, and we're going to find out just why is this thing called grace the best deal ever offered for anyone, anytime, at any place. So if you have a Bible or an iPad or a smartphone or whatever it is that you might use, we're in the book of Romans. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans is an easy verse to book to find. It's two books past the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and Romans. We're going to turn to Romans chapter 3, and I wanted to share with you three little simple little things I want you to remember. You might want to jot these down. They're little two-word phrases, because what I'm going to share with you today really is the heart of Romans. It really is the heart of the New Testament. It really is the heart of the Bible. It really is kind of the message that we really try to talk about some way, form, or fashion every single Sunday that we gather together, and it really is the reason why we're even in this building today, and it really is the reason why you are a follower, if you are a follower of Christ, why you are a follower of Christ, and exactly what that means. So there are three things I want to share with you today. Here's the first thing we're going to learn, okay? Number one, sin identifies. Sin identifies. Now, remember, we've left this building. We are now in a courtroom. Now, even though we're in chapter 3, you may have thought about it. You may realize this if you were here last week. You said, wait a minute. We were in chapter 1 last week, and you kind of skipped chapter 2, and now you're over in chapter 3. Well, we did because it's, it's, kind of, it's not that chapter 2 is not important, but what Paul is doing in chapter 2 and chapter 3 is he's building his case against the human race. He's trying to prove to everybody, doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, black or white, doesn't matter whether you go to church or don't go to church, it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. He's trying to make a point that we all are in need of the grace of God because we've all spiritually hit a wall when it comes to trying to be good enough for God. So he's been building his case, and so now he makes his point in verse 21 of chapter 3, and we'll read it together. But now apart from the law, the law, that's the commandments of God. He says, apart from the law, 
the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Let me just kind of read that again and make a couple of comments and then we'll keep going. He says, apart from the law, there's this righteousness. So now he's telling us something that, that, that really shocked the Jews. So you're telling me that righteousness has nothing to do with keeping the law in terms of being right with God. He says, well, that's, that's right. It's apart from the law. And then he says this righteousness is given. Righteousness is not something you earn. It's not something you work for. It is a gift. Now, that in mind, what does he mean by the righteousness of God? Well, the righteousness of God simply means to be right with God, to have a right standing before God. That, that, that when God looks at you and looks at me, he sees us as righteous. So when he talks about the law, he's talking about God's commandments. So right off the bat, he's saying something that's just shocking to the Jewish system, shocking to people that were raised in Judaism, shocking to religious people, and that is nobody can be right with God and nobody can be righteous before God by keeping the law. That righteousness, that's not how you be right. That's not how you get right. That's not how you stay right. This righteousness is apart from the law. You can't do it by keeping the commandments. And the question comes back, why can't you do it that way? <clears throat> and Paul says, well, it's because we've all broken the law. We have not kept his commandments. So he keeps going. He's kind of, you know, he's kind of letting us know now what our problem is. He says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. He says, look, there's only two races in the world, Jew and Gentile, and there's no difference between those two. Here's why. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, let me tell you what Paul has just done. Remember, we're in the courtroom. Paul has just unsealed the indictment that's against every one of us. We are under an indictment. We're in this courtroom. We've all been indicted. And after two and a half chapters, Paul finally unrolls, Paul finally uncovers and, 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 and rolls out the indictment. He says, okay, here's the charge that's been brought against all of us. We have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. That's the indictment. That's what you're charged with. We've all sinned and we've all fall short of God's glory. By the way, that verb to fall short is in the present tense. And in the Greek language, that denotes continuous action. He says, look, you got two problems. Not only have you sinned, not only have you broken God's law in the past, but basically you still do it. You're still not perfect. Even if you're a believer, you're still not perfect. We all fall short of the glory of God. Sometime today, you know, we'll, let, let's face it. Some of us today, God, God help us, some of us today will go to a Super Bowl party, and we're not just going to watch football. You know what we're going to do? We're going to overeat, right? We're going to have sausage balls and meatballs. We're going to have all these food, all this stuff, and we're going to, I mean, from the kickoff at the beginning of the game to the final gun at the end of the game, we're going to eat, 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 right? We're going to overeat, okay? So that's just kind of one example of something that we're going to do. We're going to fall short of the glory of God. So in other words, Paul says, look, all human beings of every race and rank, of every creed and color, Jews and Gentiles, religious and irreligious, without exception, we're all sinful, we're all guilty, we're all without excuse before God. So here's kind of the good news, I guess if you want to call this the good news, we're all in the same boat, 
We've all got the same problem. We've all made the same mess. We are all sinners and we all sin. We continuously fall short of the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God. The indictment has been unsealed. We know what the charge is against us, but now that raises this next question that Paul wants to address. And here's the question. How can sinful me be right with a sinless God? How can sinful me be right with a sinless God? We've hit the wall. So the question is, how do we break through? Now, let me just stop right here before I say anything else. I know a lot of you have heard all this before. You grew up with it. I know some of you probably don't like it. You think, man, we're living in the 21st century. We live in a postmodern society. People even laugh at the concept of sin. We don't talk about sin anymore. People don't sin. They make mistakes. People don't sin. They have errors in judgment. People don't sin. They just miscalculate. And yet we keep coming back to this word sin. And I'm going to tell you why this is so important. If you don't understand sin, and if you don't understand that we're all sinners, then you'll never understand the Bible. It'll make no sense. You will never understand the gospel. You'll never understand you and yourself. You'll never understand your need for God. You'll never understand how you can get right with God or why you even need to be right with God. And so what Paul is saying right off the bat is, look, sin identifies every one of us. We are all sinners. We all sin because we're all sinners. And we all constantly are falling short of the glory of God. Now, if you go back and read the first two and a half chapters before we get to this point, you'll see for yourself, if you don't even believe what you read in the newspaper, if you don't believe the people that you live with, if you don't even believe the person you look at in the mirror, he says, look, the evidence is overwhelming. The verdict is clear. We're guilty. The proof is incontrovertible. God's got everything. God's got the pictures. God's got your fingerprints. God's got your DNA. God's got all your failures, all your faults, all your flaws. We're even witnesses against ourselves. Sin identifies us. Sin is what we do because sinners are who we are. That is the huge problem. So the indictment has been unsealed. The charge has been brought. The evidence has been presented. Now we're waiting on the verdict. And then the judge does an amazing thing. Because not only is it true that sin identifies, but then Paul says, God justifies. What? Sin identifies, yeah? God justifies. Now, I've told you before, won't you take a deep breath? Because we're about to plunge in some of the deepest waters of biblical truth we will ever swim in. Now, here's, here's where we are right now. We've been indicted. The charge has been brought. The evidence has been presented. We have been convicted. Now we're just awaiting the sentence. So the judge comes in, all rise, everybody rises, be seated. The judge asks you to stand to your feet, you stand to your feet. The judge's gavel comes down, you brace yourself, you close your eyes, you grit, you grit your teeth, you're expecting the worst, and then you hear these words, and all are justified freely by his grace. Excuse me? All are justified freely 
by his grace, justified. What does that mean? And how does that work? And why did God do that? The word justification is one of the longest words in the New Testament, but it's one of the greatest and most important words for the Christian faith. So let me kind of give you the backdrop. Let me tell you why this is such a big deal. You know, all, all the way back to the beginning of time, a courtroom has always been for two purposes, right? It always has two purposes. In a courtroom, you're trying to do one of two things. You're either trying to acquit the innocent or you're trying to convict the guilty. That's what a courtroom is for. You either acquit the innocent or you condemn the guilty. So you know how it works, right? If, after hearing all the evidence, a judge decides that you're guilty, he says guilty. And if a judge decides you're not guilty, uh, then he renders a not guilty verdict. Now we also know this. A judge should never declare a man innocent if he knows that he's guilty. And a judge should never de declare a man guilty if he knows that he's innocent. Nobody likes that, especially God. As a matter of fact, this is what God says about that. God says acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. So if you don't like the fact that innocent people go, that guilty people go free, neither does God. And if you don't like the fact that sometimes innocent people are wrongly condemned, well, neither does God. But you say, wait a minute. We are guilty. We know we're guilty. God knows we're guilty. Everybody else knows we're guilty. And we should be condemned. We're not innocent. The evidence is indisputable. And yet Paul says, but you're justified freely by his grace. The gavel comes down. The judge looks us in the eye. We're braced for the worst. And we hear these words, not guilty. What? Not guilty. Now I want to ask you a question. How can that be? Has there been some new evidence presented? No. How about extenuating circumstances? No. Alibi? No. Technicality? No. Judge has been bribed? No. So how is it we just walk away free and clean? Now let me just stop right there. Don't be fooled. Justification is not an easy thing to do. Because see, here's something we know. It's unfortunate, but it's true. We know that guilty people are sometimes found innocent. Now, why is that true? Because what? There has to be evidence beyond a reasonable what? Doubt, right? So we know, right? We know there are, we know this. We all know it. I'm not going to give examples because somebody would get upset if I gave some. But you probably can figure some out. We know that there are some people. They did it. Everybody knows they did it. There's no doubt that they did it. But they got off either on this technicality or that technicality or, you know, whatever. And, and they got off. And even though they were guilty, there just wasn't enough evidence to convict them. So a judge may render a not guilty verdict. But here's the problem. Just because a judge renders you a not guilty verdict doesn't mean he justifies you. If I kill somebody and I go on trial, but I've got a great lawyer and I put enough doubt in the jury's mind, and I get off, and the judge looks at me, and he says, not guilty, that does not mean he has justified me. You say, why? Because justification 
not only says, okay, you can go free, justification doesn't just acquit you. Justification also erases any record of anything you've ever done wrong. But the record shows that we've all done wrong. Hey, let me give you an example. The President of the United States can pardon a criminal. He can pardon anybody he wants to, no matter what they've done. The president can pardon a criminal, but even he cannot reinstate that criminal to the position of someone who's never broken the law. Even he can't wipe the slate clean, and yet God does both. He doesn't just look at us and say, you're innocent. He doesn't just look at us and say, you're not guilty. He wipes the slate clean. He looks at us in our unrighteousness and yet declares us righteous. How does he do that? Well, he does it freely, freely. No big attorney fees. Nope. No bribing the judge. Nope. Justified freely by his, and here's that word again. What is it? Grace. By his grace. Now, remember what grace is. If you don't know what it is or had forgotten, let me show you. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. That's what grace is. Now, say, wait a minute, but we deserve justice. You're right. And justice demands condemnation. You're right. Because we're guilty. You're right. And God is a just judge. You're right. So wait a minute. If we're guilty and God is a just judge and we deserve justice then and we deserve condemnation, how do those of us who deserve condemnation receive justification? Well, for the answer to that, we've got to leave the courtroom. We've got to take another field trip. We've got to go to two other places. We've got to go to a marketplace, and we've got to go to a religious altar, okay? So now you're going to see why God justifies, all right? So here's the problem. The problem is sin identifies. We're guilty. But then God comes along, and God justifies. But how does God do that? He's a just judge. He can't let guilty people just go scot-free. How does God do that? Watch this. Because Jesus satisfies. Jesus satisfies. Sin identifies. God justifies. Jesus satisfies. Now, let me give you an example. How many of you got a Christmas gift for Christmas? Just hold your hand up. Who got a Christmas gift? Okay. Why did you call that a Christmas gift? Because it didn't cost you anything. So true or false? True or false? This is a trick question. Was that Christmas gift free? True or false? True or false? Just say out loud. True. Some said true. Some said false. You're both right. If you're asking me, you gave me a Christmas gift. Was a Christmas gift free? Well, yes. You mean to me? It was free. You mean to the person that bought it? No, it wasn't free. So even though a gift is free, doesn't mean it doesn't cost anything. It may be free to us, doesn't mean it's free. And the reason why our justification is free and cost us nothing is because it cost Jesus everything. That's why we're justified freely. Now, we're going to leave the courtroom. We're going to go to the marketplace. Okay, so here's how it works. Watch this. We're going to get deeper now for a minute, so take a deep breath. We're all justified freely by his grace, but that doesn't just happen by the snap of a finger. It happens through the redemption that came by Christ 
Jesus. Now let's go back. Do you remember why we were even in the courtroom to begin with? You say, well, yeah, because we are sinners. What's worse than that? We're not just sinners. We're slaves to sin. Jesus said, he who commits sin is a slave to sin. I'll give you just a quick example. Have you ever had somebody that maybe they're they're kind of an alcoholic, but they don't want to admit it? Or they're a chain smoker and they don't want to admit it. And you'll say to that person, you know, you really ought to quit drinking and you really ought to quit smoking. Have you ever heard somebody say this? Oh, I can quit anytime I want to. You ever heard that? But isn't it strange that the people that say they can quit anytime they want to, never want to. You know why? Because they can't. It's not that they don't quit. They can't quit. Right? I mean, they are slaves to the alcohol. They are slaves to the tobacco. Well, Back in the day, long before government offered poverty assistance programs, if a person fell into debt, they could lose their land, they could become completely destitute and impoverished, and the only possible way you could avoid going to prison was to sell yourself into slavery or repay the debt. So that's the way a lot of people got into slavery. Now, because of that, there were a lot of people that were born into slavery. And then if somebody lived in a land that was conquered, they would be forced into slavery. Doesn't matter how you became a slave. If you were a slave, the only hope you had to go free was redemption. That was your only shot. That was your only hope. Somebody either had to pay off your debt, or even if you owed no debt, they had to offer to pay enough to purchase your master for your freedom. And the term for that became redemption. Now, that's just a commercial term out of the marketplace, just like justified is a legal term out of the courtroom. And here's what, we're, here's what Paul's been saying now for two and a half chapters. We are all born into spiritual slavery. We're going to see this next week. We're all born into spiritual slavery. All of us that were born, the moment we came into this world, we had a master. He was called sin. We are natural born sinners. And just like any other slave, we don't have any means to free ourselves. We don't have any ability to free ourselves. But Jesus redeemed us. Jesus bought our freedom. How did he do that? He shed his own blood as the payment price for our sin. Now, I could stop right there and you could also say, well, I've heard that before. Matter of fact, we've sung that before. There's an old, old hymn we used to sing, nothing but the what? Nothing but the blood, right? So we've kind of sung about redemption, you know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, there's still more that had to be done. Well, what was that? Well, Paul says this. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now, here's what Paul does. Paul says, now we're going to leave the marketplace. Now let's go to the religious altar, okay? That phrase, sacrifice of atonement, comes from a Greek word, which means, I'm going to give you a real big word right now, and you probably hadn't heard it very often, if, if at all. It's a word that means propitiation. Matter of fact, some of you may have in your, in your uh, Bible version, it says a propitiation. Now let me just stop. There are a lot of people, or some people I will say, they, they don't like that word. They don't like to apply that word to God. They don't like to apply that word to Jesus. Because do you know what the word propitiation means? It means to placate somebody's anger. It it, it means to to satisfy someone's wrath. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about wrath. If you weren't, let me just give you a quick summary of last week. Paul talked about last week the fact that all the world's under the wrath of God. 
Because God, one thing that make God hates, and there's one thing that makes God angry, God hates wickedness and sin, and God is angry at wickedness and sin. And, and we said last week, if God is not a God of love, he wouldn't be a God of anger. The reason why God is angry at sin, the reason why God hates sin, and the re reason why his wrath is against sin is because it hurts us. It hurts his children. Anybody that hurts your kids or your grandkids is going to make you angry. It should make you angry if you love them. Well, God loves us and God wants what's best for us. So when he sees sin and wickedness and evil and what it does to us, what it does to marriages, what it does to families, what it does to couples, what it does to kids, God is very angry. He absolutely hates it. So we established that a loving God should be angry with his sin, is angry with sin, because sin hurts the people that he loves the most. Now, here's the problem. Because it's our sin that causes the anger and our wickedness that causes the anger and our evil that causes the anger, there is nothing we can do to satisfy that anger. There's nothing we can do to remove the wrath of God on evil and sinfulness. And this is where the wrath of God and the love of God comes together. And how this happens is absolutely incredible. So stay with me. Remember, I told you that normally in any case when a judge is presiding, and you probably know this, if the judge has any connection with the personalities in the case whatsoever, what does the judge have to do? He has to recuse himself, right? Now, think about this. If the judge is also the offended party, he has to recuse himself. Because obviously, a judge cannot preside over a case where he is, in effect, the plaintiff. Now, here's what's amazing. In the situation, we're going to go back to the courtroom just for a second. God is not only the judge. God is also the plaintiff. You say, why is that true? Because sin is always first against who? Against God. So let me give you an example. If you cheat on your income taxes, your primary sin is not against the government. It's primarily against God. If you cheat on your spouse... The first offended party is not your spouse, it's God. If you've got a racist attitude, the first offended party is not the race, it's God. So God is not only the judge, God is the offended party. So here's the dilemma. God wants to justify us even though we are guilty. As the judge, he has to see that justice is done or he wouldn't be a righteous judge. But as the plaintiff, he has the right to satisfaction. So how's that dilemma resolved? Jesus steps in as the propitiation for our sin. He satisfies God's wrath. He sees to it that God's justice is carried out. He accepts the penalty for our sin. And because of Jesus, watch this, because of Jesus, everybody's satisfied. The judge is satisfied. The plaintiff is satisfied. We are satisfied. There is total satisfaction. So here's the point Paul's trying to make. At the cross, Jesus did it all. Now look what, God, look, look what Jesus does. I hope you'll never see the cross again after what I'm about to tell you. Three things actually happened at the cross. You just think one thing happened. Well, yeah, Jesus died for our sins. No, it was more than that. At the cross, there were three unbelievable things that happened. Watch this. At the cross... Jesus goes to the courtroom, and he accepted the punishment of our sin. At the cross, Jesus goes to the marketplace, and he paid the price for our freedom. 
at the cross, Jesus goes to the religious altar, and he took the pain of God's wrath. When you look at the cross, you see everything. He took care of the courtroom problem. He took care of the marketplace problem. He took care of the religious altar problem. He took care of the justice problem. He took care of the slavery problem. He took care of the wrath problem. So when you look at the cross, you see the love of God. You see the justice of God. You see the wrath of God. You see the mercy of God. You see the grace of God. That's why we named our church Cross Point. Because we want to always point to the cross. So listen, this is a little thing you might want to remember. The point of the Christian life is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the point. The point of the Christian life is the cross of Jesus Christ. So so to put it simply, it was the love of God that satisfied the wrath of God through the Son of God. Let's just read that together. It was the love of God that satisfied the wrath of God through the Son of God. See, here's what I want you to understand. So many people think, I know why God loves us. Why? God loves us because Jesus died for us. You got it backwards. God doesn't love us because Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us because God loves us. It all culminates in the cross. The marketplace, the courtroom, the religious altar, they all came together at the cross. Now, wait a minute. That raises another big question. Well, wait a minute. You say, so why was the cross necessary? Why why did Jesus have to die for us? Why did he have to redeem us? Why did he have to propitiate us? Why did he have to justify us? Keep reading verse 26. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Here's the big question. See, we don't think it's a big deal. Okay, you know I mean? You know, you can, it's, it's just not a big deal when somebody says, well, boys will be boys. That's just the way people act. You get out a jail-free card, I'll just give you a pass this time. It's not that simple. Because the question you have to keep asking is this. So how can a holy God justify guilty sinners by his grace, and on what ground does he do it? Or let me just ask it a little more complex. How is it possible for a righteous God to declare the unrighteous to be righteous without compromising his righteousness or condoning our unrighteousness? I want to say that again. Just listen to it. How is it possible for a righteous God to declare the unrighteous to be righteous without compromising his righteousness or condoning our unrighteousness? That is the question, and Jesus is the answer. So to put it one other way, God can be just in his righteousness righteousness, and justify the unrighteous at the same time because at the cross justice was done. So all we have to do now is what? Accept the verdict, enter into our freedom, live in this perfectly peaceful relationship with God. And how do you do that? Well, there's a little word we've read three times. You probably haven't paid attention to it. It's it's repeated three times in these five verses. And it's one of the greatest words also in the Bible. It's one of the most important words. 
He says three times, you only need to do, you only need one thing to take the deal. You only need one thing and you're good to go. And that one word is faith. It's just by faith. Justification is by Christ alone, by grace alone. Justification is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. Justification is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. Now, let me just stop. I hope you stayed with me. I hope you kind of understand. I know this was deep. Now, we're, gonna, we're, we're back up for air now, okay? We're back out of the deep water. I'm going to see whether you get this or not. If you understand what I'm about to say, you say, okay, now I get it. If you want to know what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world, if you want to know what makes Christianity so unique from every other religion in the world, if you want to know why Christianity is not even a religion, I just told you. There is no other religion in the world. None. None. There is no other religion in the world that will stand up where I'm standing right now and say to you what I'm telling you right now, and that is, I promise you, God promises you free forgiveness and eternal life to those of us who don't deserve it, to those of us who have done nothing to deserve it, to those of us who have done everything not to deserve it, but he gives it to us anyway. And then the cherry on the cake, you can't even earn it. It's just by faith. It's just a gift. Islam doesn't come within a thousand miles of doing that. Judaism doesn't come within a thousand miles of doing that. Hinduism, Buddhism, every other religion in the world, none of them come within a country mile. It's always do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, go there, don't go, go there, eat that, don't eat that, drink that, don't drink that. And God comes along and says, justified freely by my grace and I'm still just in doing it because Jesus paid the penalty Jesus took the pain Jesus gave the price and it's all by faith amen so listen let me tell you what that means let me tell you what that means that means there's nobody that's so good, they don't need to take this deal. And it also means there's nobody so bad, they don't get to take this deal. It's on the table for everybody. This deal's both exclusive and it's inclusive. And only those who believe can receive the best deal. But Paul says, but all who believe it, receive it. If you don't believe it, you won't receive it. But if you believe it, you will receive it. So let me just close with this. Many years ago, there was a rich man that hated slavery, hated it. So one day, he went down to the slave market, and there was this beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous young slave girl, and she was up on the block being auctioned off, and, and, and they were bidding for this girl. Now, this girl was beautiful. She's gorgeous. So a lot of bids were being put up for this girl. But were all these other men that were bidding for her because they wanted to do bad things for this girl, this man only wanted to do something good for this girl. Well, even the master of this girl could not believe how high the price was going. And every time somebody bid out a, threw out a price, this man would just bid higher. And it went higher and higher and higher and higher. And finally, he bid this outrageous price, and he bought this girl. So when they brought this girl to him, she looked up with these sad eyes, wondering, 
So what are you going to demand of me? What do you want from me? They hand him the certificate of sale. And he drew her up close to him. And he handed her the bill of sale. And he said, you're free. And she said, what? He said, you're free. She said, what do you mean free? He said, you're free. She said, free to do what I want to do? He said, yes. She said, free to to say what I want to say? He said, yes. And then the big question. Free to go where I want to go? And he said, yes. And then with the tears flowing down her cheeks, she said with a big smile, then I want to go with you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. Listen to me. When I realized as a nine-year-old boy that the best deal I was ever going to get in my life was what I got in Jesus, who took my pain, paid my price, and accepted my punishment, you know what I said? I'm going with you. I'm going with you. And I pray that you will too. Let's pray together. With heads bowed and eyes closed. I want you to hear me and hear me clearly. Listen. You were born into sin. 